Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. Be the miners. Sure, they're like three years old. Miners, not miners. If you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. <laughs> I don't, don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Every time someone says, I do not believe in fairies, somewhere there's a fairy that falls down Great dead. women who aren't afraid to fight, to stand up for our dignity. Transference is inevitable, sir. Every human being has an impact. There are no colored bathrooms in this building. And a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. History of evolution has taught us it's that life will not be contained. Life finds a way. Words are, in my not so humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic. Hello and welcome. This is Bite the Pen. I am Jen, and sitting on the other side of the Atlantic is Miss Charlotte, who is amazing. I didn't mention our last names in this intro, but I usually do, so it's just going to be Miss Charlotte. How's it going? I'm going good. You're going good. I'm going I'm good. Are you going good? <laughs> I'm going pretty good. So this is part two of our witch and healer archetype series, which was a really amazing idea by Miss Charlotte. We had our listeners and you guys do a poll to tell us what you wanted to do what you wanted to hear next and you guys picked this one so it's very exciting it's really fun do you want to mention anything before we jump back in in part one we went through the evolution of this archetype using certain figures well actually they're all considered like fictional even though some are mythology and used in some religions we're looking at them as though they're in our archetypal psychology, let's say. That's what archetypes are, right? They're, they're universal. We're not condoning or encouraging any specific religion or beliefs, but it's in our DNA, these archetypes. And which is a big one because which has gone through the most change. So part two, we are going to continue with that. So why don't we hear about the third witch slash healer on our list? That's the evil witch. This is an interesting one and perhaps an all-encompassing character, but she's basically the same in all the fairy tales. But before we jump into this character, we must mention the horrific history that goes into the evil hag. We as people, while creative, and the fact that we, out of our psychology, zeitgeist, whatever you want to call it, created this mother goddess, a beautiful image and beautiful thing to be worshipping, can also be twisted very quickly. And Mm -hmm. I don't want to, like, blame Christianity again, but... (laughs) I do. (laughs) it's, It's quite amazing. Our ability to fictionalize so convincingly... Hmm. You can call it myth, but back then they would call it their religion, right? Today we're like, oh, Hecate, she's a goddess of Greek mythology. But back then that would be their god. You don't mess with that. So when you get the Christians in here and that same respected healer woman, powerful woman, knowledgeable woman, it's very much a threat because that doesn't quite fit into not only their way of living, but their beliefs in the patriarchy. So I hate to say this, but if the medieval era ended in the 1400s, right, it's only 100 years later that there is a mass hysteria 
And the witch archetype is contorted horrifically into our reality. Women suddenly are condemned of being associated with the demonic and more specifically with the Christian devil. Mm. And it's so artfully done. I have to admit it's horrific, but it's artfully done. I would say it all comes down to another book, which we did not use as a source. And I'm kind of glad that we didn't because we don't need to read this. The big tool used to condemn real women of a kind of fake witchcraft, I would say, completely fake, is Melius Maleficarum, translated Hammer of Witches. And it was written by Heinrich Kramer. I would say he was a begrudged clergyman. That's what I would call him. I mean, he basically lost a trial when he tried to condemn a woman of being a witch. And he got so upset that he used his influence to have both the church and the state back him up. And suddenly law went out the window. And that's why I call it mass hysteria. I mean, that's happened in like the Red Scare. It's happened. And that's what happened for the witch trials of Europe. And it did happen around the 1500s and it's still happening today. But basically this book that he wrote gave very specific reasons why women are not to be trusted, (laughs) what to look for to condemn them in their trials of witchcraft. Disobedience. Disobedience, the ones that were ostracized, the ones that practiced healing specifically, who didn't have kids, who weren't married, who didn't attend church. So all women. Yeah. (laughs) Literally all women who weren't like the Christian obedient wife. And even them sometimes were condemned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he had a goal, and that goal was accomplished in so many ways. And he had the right influence, and people wanted a scapegoat at this time. We mentioned the Black Plague took a lot of lives, and back then it would have been superstition. Superstition. But medicine women were the ones that people went to, and they couldn't they couldn't heal it. And it wasn't their fault, but yeah. they are to blame because we don't have the big doctors that we have now. Which is just the most male thing ever. One guy gets pissed off, feels threatened or emasculated by a woman, and then condemns all women and takes it out on them. When they live in a patriarchy, they have everything. Everything. And they still get angry at us and decide that all women are bad and because they have power and influence and they live in a patriarchy and we live in a patriarchy, that's doable. I mean, incels. This is like the original incel. Yes. It's just scary when it can creep into state policy that quickly. Yeah. Before his influence, (laughs) I don't know what to call them, provinces, villages, whatever they were in the 1500s. Everybody had their own code of law regarding witches. And their concepts were very clear that there was good and there was bad witchcraft. And they could try a woman based on their own evidence to determine if it was good or bad. And most wouldn't even try a woman for it because if it was good witchcraft, it worked in their favor and they were all for it. You need to respect a healer because the time your wife is dying, you're going to call on her and you won't be sorry because she can save lives. What was my point about this? That Oh, so that they had their own power to try and accuse and all of that was within the province. But suddenly he made the law be normalized. And he gave all the power kind of to the church. Hmm. Really incredible to me that only 100 years after a plague that wiped out such a high percentage of the people, 
would lead to this. This is not, I guess it makes sense in some ways because people are looking for order after all of the awful things that happened in the last hundred years and being like the children and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren of those people who lived through plague and all the other ways you could die. But it's just incredible to me that so many women were tortured and killed so close to something that wiped out so many people. Like I said, I guess it makes sense in some twisted way that they wanted to blame somebody for things. And women have always been the target for men to blame things on since the beginning of time. But it's just really incredible that there are people still now who think this way. They don't call it the same thing, but they think the same way. But yeah, and then in another way, it doesn't make any sense. Because usually with such a loss of population, the social orders tend to try to figure out how to repopulate. And it's interesting because when it was goddess worship, women had power over life. And they knew how to handle that. They are the life givers. Of course, they know how to handle that. Why even now, our population and what's happening now, it's because the power to the life giver is not present. So it'll be messed up until that power is returned. Okay, this is not related, but I have to tell you this. In Germany, in Berlin in specific, but in all of Germany, the number of men taking their children out and walking with their children and taking care of their children is astounding. I have never seen it like this before. Like men are more active in their children's lives than the women are sometimes. It's incredible. It's really, truly incredible to see so many men out and about with their children, taking care of the children, going to the park with the children. Even when there's like a family unit, the the man, the, the father usually takes care of everything. And it's just like, it blows my mind. I'm just like, what? <laughs> this is not, you wouldn't see this in the U.S. Oh. And I just, I had to share that. <laughs> so things have changed a little bit in, in Germany um, since the witch trials. <laughs> If that's any consolation. <laughs> <laughs> well, and actually Heinrich Kramer, I don't think was a German. He was living in Germany, but I'm pretty sure he was Dominican. Or maybe that wasn't like his original name or I don't know. Um, you know, usually yeah. um, like priests and monks and brothers, they do a lot of traveling in order to convert and to spread mm, Christianity. I see. So it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if he was born in Dominican and oh, okay. ended up in Germany, maybe. I don't know. Interesting. <laughs> Research more about that. Sorry. <laughs> How dare you not know everything? <laughs> but all of this is to say that the image of the Malleus Maleficarum, which would be outlasting and to this day is what we associate with in the witch, the demonic and the devil worshiper and the conjurer of evil. All of those things are from this horrific era in our history. So the evil witch then. When we come to the 1800s, we have a phase where all these fairy tales and folk tales that were told to children, and they were told in order to deter that motherly comfort that grandmother, because grandmothers in society were just a must. And that's how societies thrived. Once you had your grandmother, your wise woman, you would outlast most villages and most societies. There was something about their wisdom, their caretaking that really allowed society to thrive. That's because they're magical beings, okay? Grandmothers are the absolute best. Yes, ever. exactly. Their theory is that 
the fathers of the household would turn that grandmotherly figure into the hag, something to be feared because women in power really just needed to be gone. And I think that was why these fairy tales were passed along. So by the 1800s, when they were published, for example, and the one that we chose was Hansel and Gretel by the Brothers Grimm, and their collection is quite extensive. You're so nice. You're not good, you're not bad. You're just nice. I'm not good, I'm not nice. I'm just right. I'm the witch. You're the world. I'm the hitch. I'm what no one believes. I'm the witch. You're all liars and thieves like his father. Like his son will be too. Oh, my father. You'll just do what you do. It's the So who are the evil witches then? Who, who are we actually talking about in these stories? The evil witches are considered the isolated, usually older women in the forest who punish and eat people. <laughs> or they're the seducing stepmothers who create traps and tricks for their selfish desires. Mm. And most fairy tales, there's usually a stepmother or a witch. Negative female character. Exactly. Whatever it is, it's usually mm. negative. That's the evil witch mm. that we're talking about. So our source is from the, well, it was first published in 1812 by the Brothers Grimm. But then they, of course, redid it with some sensory in 1857. For those of you who don't know the folktale of Hansel and Gretel, we start off with a starving family. There is the father, the stepmother, and the girl and the boy children. Because they are starving, the father and mother cast out these kids into the forest, and they do so in a deceiving way, which is that we're just going to cut down some wood for fire, but then they leave them there. And the boy, overhearing the plan from the beginning, is able to track the path in the forest by these pebbles that light up in moonlight. So they actually return home to the surprise of the parents. So when another famine hits the family, the parents again try to abandon them in the forest. And the boy this time is unable to get pebbles, but what he does is he leaves crumbs, breadcrumbs. And unfortunately, the breadcrumbs are eaten by the birds, and it does not work the same way. So when the kids are trying to make it home, they stumble upon a house made of candy. And inside this house of candy is an evil witch who lures them in by saying, I will take care of you and I will feed you. And unfortunately, that does not happen. She instead imprisons them. She tries to fatten up the boy because right away she just admits, I will be eating you both. And it would be great if you had more fat on your bones. When she is ready to bake the boy in an oven, the little girl so cleverly asks for a demonstration on how the oven works and how one might fit into this oven. And the witch obliges to demonstrate and she is pushed into the oven and Gretel is able to lock her in where she burns alive. Both Hansel and Gretel escape and they find their way back home. And while the father is very happy to see them, supposedly the mother did not survive. She passed away somehow and we don't know how. But if we think of the stepmother and the witch of the forest being one and the same, it makes sense that they are both defeated in the end. So yes, the quote that we used. She was a wicked witch who was lying in wait there for children. She had built her house of bread only in order to lure them to her. And if she captured one, she would kill him, cook him, and eat him. And for her, that was a day to celebrate. 
Witches have red eyes and cannot see very far, but they have a sense of smell like animals and know when humans are approaching. <laughs> Must be so scary for children. God. They really hate women to demonize women in this way. Old women in this way. And if they have motives for what they do, it's usually vindictive. But often in these fairy tales, there's not even a motive. They're just bad because they're associated with the devil and that's enough. It said it was around 1800s that these were published, which is post-witch trial. And the only thing I can add to that is it was in this era of patriarchal obedience. If they wanted to teach their kids obedience, the antagonist would be an evil woman. So no wonder all the males in the household wouldn't know anything about respect of the woman, even the grandmother. I mean, isn't that sad? This, this once sacred grandmother is now the evil hag in the forest. They literally would take old women and take them to the forest and say, get out of here. Like, like, I mean, compare that to like an Asian culture. I think it's Chinese where the, the children are, it's established the children must take care of their elderly. Where was that, Europe and America? Where was that? <laughs> and you're right. It, it makes everything so barren. If they can't even respect their, their child bearers, they can't respect the people who teach the children. Like, that's your future. You're getting rid of not only your present, but your future. I don't understand how a society can survive that. Well, your, your parents didn't teach you anything. The church <laughs> taught you everything. That's right. That's right. The church is always right, and your parents can be wrong. And it's just like an incredible disservice to everybody in a family unit to just cast away somebody when they're a certain age and be like, well, you're not needed anymore, so goodbye. It's like, okay. <sighs> yeah. And then medicine women had to go in hiding, obviously, because at this time they yeah. were training male doctors. And if you didn't have a license and you were trying to help someone and you were a woman... I I mean, maybe the family would be so desperate that it didn't matter, but most often they would rather have that person die than be helped by somebody called a medicine woman. Good job, people. So how do we see the evil witch today? Is she still around? Jen, what do you think? <laughs> I, it's me. I'm her. <laughs> so I have to mention one of the fairy tales from the book that we've looked at before, which is called Sappho's Fables, Volume 1. There's never a volume two. It's very depressing. There's only a volume one. But So for those who don't remember, this little gem has three retellings of well-known fairy tales, and all of them include lesbian representation. So the last one in the book is Hansel and Gretel, and it's called Crumbs, like breadcrumbs. If we want to talk about a modern adaption, this is it. Let me ask you, Charlotte, what does the original story of Hansel and Gretel need most? The obvious answer is zombies. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Which makes a lot of sense. Eating people, that kind of thing. So in this version of the witch character, we actually get a young woman who is a self-taught scientist. So this, this is really far off from the original. But she mimics the witch by baking pies, cookies, cakes, and cupcakes. And she basically encourages, very strongly encourages Han and Greta to eat them when they've escaped this junkyard and gotten to the metal forest, which is the city. And they're hoping to be saved there and to find people and they come across this candy factory and that's where they meet these two sister and brother also 
So instead of having an old witch, we've got two new characters who kind of represent the witch together, but mostly just the young woman. So we have a lot of the same tropes, the wood stove, um, Greta nearly pushes the quote witch into the fire. And we find out that the sweets that Han and Greta have been fed actually contain a cure to the sickness that has turned humans into what they call ragers, which are the zombies. Oh my gosh. So through years of trial and error, the witch in this story has become the healer once more and is feeding the cure to those who are sick in order to heal them. Um, and part of that is um, her sexuality does come into play because there's, of course, because it's Sappho's fables. So I, what I really liked about this version was that she comes back around. So it's like we've seen the evil witch as the evil witch. And in this one, we think she's evil, but we're not sure. And she kind of plays into the evil stepmother where she's not an old, she's not a hag, she's not a crone. She's still like in the mother reign. Not a girl anymore, but not a, an old woman or old wise woman. And we get to see her as a healer and in this case a scientist which i think is a really fun twist on a fable that's awesome so i really wanted to mention that because it's a really fun story and it's really cool to see the witch turned into something positive excellent and, and that's the perfect metaphor you're right i wouldn't have thought zombies but you're right the psychology of hansel and gretel is usually associated with hunger cannibalism food lack of an abundance of the fact that her house is made of candy is a big lure. Right. So that's interesting. Yeah. It makes total sense. Yeah. What about you? Do you have a modern uh, or how we see the character today? Her flatness was used quite a bit in children's tales mm. then and now. Mm. But in children's literature today, I would even say like Roald Dahl's The Witches is that type of evil witch hag who starts off gorgeous and maybe turns ugly when they start the, their demonic practices. Yeah. Same thing with what's happening here in Hansel and Gretel is, and many others, even like Snow White, you get a stepmother who then turns into a hag when she does mm. magic. Yeah. Hansel and Gretel, you have a stepmother who dies at the same time as the evil witch in the forest. Like, is that a coincidence? Probably not. They might be part of the same thing. Mm-hmm. But you have the dynamic of beautiful and seducing and ugly and life-taking or punishing, I would say. Even but the Slavic tales of Baba Yaga, mm -hmm. there's usually the evil stepmother who sends the girl into the forest. And Baba Yaga can either be a helper, which originally she was. I mean, still scary and capable of punishing. Mm -hmm. But depending on what kind of person you were, she was a better judge than the flat evil villain that we see sometimes in English. But then we see, I don't know, I was even going to bring up like Maleficent. Yeah. Come to modern times, the evil witch can be dynamic and sympathetic. What does that look like? And I think Disney's Maleficent is a great example of that. Frozen could be said to be mm. a different example of the ice queen. I think that that really connects well to the witch that I picked for my specific favorite because it, it has a lot of that too where you kind of see the origin which is quote good or innocent and then you see the the spike down I guess or spike up to evil or wronged and turned evil and then you see it come back to the middle 
which is like human in a lot of ways, which is good and bad, but but not evil and not pure, quote unquote, pure. I think that's a really interesting and fun arc to see. That's a great way of putting it, that most stories come from the extremes, from either the innocent, the evil, but never the one in the middle who's figured both out. Right. Yes. Wow. That's great. And I think Maleficent does that perfectly, which is why I loved that movie so much is you know defrosting the ice queen but she's still herself she's still who she is from her experiences she doesn't go back to being innocent she just learns and i would even say we need more of the complex and misunderstood hag of the forest i mean it's easy to do maleficent because she's gorgeous and (laughs) anyone who's also considered the temptress because they're beautiful but we don't have like where's the ugly misunderstood hag Hmm. I was even thinking like Big Fish. In the movie Big Mm. Fish, there was a character who's seen as a seer and a hag who lives by herself. And the main character visits her just to know his future. But then that same character is used as a tempter in in his love life. So you get both the seductress and the hag. But I I don't see her complex story on, I don't know. There's just more that could be done there. Absolutely. And I think if we saw more older women in film and TV in general, we would have that opportunity, but we don't. Yeah. We need to see the healer again. Like, where is she? Where is that misunderstood, wronged healer? I don't know. If you know where she is, please call (laughs) your local police department. No, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) I know I'm a popular and with an assist from me to be who you'll be instead of dreary who you were well are there's nothing that can stop you from becoming popular lar la, la. so our next witch healer is a classic that most people recognize even if they've never seen the original movie and that's glinda the quote good witch so i'm going to talk about who glinda is in the movies and Charlotte's going to give us a little bit about her in the book. And then we'll pay, play some clips. So who is Glinda? She is a character from Frank Albaum's book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. But she's really well known for her image in the 1939 musical Wizard of Oz, produced by Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. And fun fact, this is the most seen film in movie history. So if you haven't seen it, you need to jump on the bandwagon. Interesting. So in the movie, Glinda is portrayed by an older woman who is the crone archetype uh, instead of being the appearance of a maiden in, in the book. She also does a lot of heavy lifting in the movie. Quote, she performs the functions of not only the novel's Good Witch of the North and Good Witch of the South, but also the novel's Queen of Field Mice by being the one who welcomes Dorothy to Oz and then sends her off to see the wizard and orchestrates her rescue from the deadly poppy field, in addition to revealing the secret to going back home. It's a movie, so they just needed to cut all of that and make it one character. So that's what they did. Um, And then, like I said, I have some clips. I have two clips from the movie. So this is one of the famous clips. And so what the munchkins want to know is, are you a good witch or a bad witch? But I've already told you, I'm not a witch at all. Witches are old and ugly. I am a witch. I'm Glinda, the witch of the north. You are? 
Oh, I beg your pardon, but I've never heard of a beautiful witch before. Only bad witches are ugly. That's the first clip. Obviously, there's some problematic things there, but it's also what we've been talking about, sort of like this idea of a old, mean, ugly witch being evil, and this really, like, beautiful, goddess-like character being a good witch. And I thought this other clip was really important because we actually have two witches, the good witch and the bad witch, um, arguing about good and evil. you said she was dead. That was her sister, the Wicked Witch of the East. This is the Wicked Witch of the West. She's worse than the other one was. Who killed my sister? Who killed the Witch of the East? Was it you? No. No, it was an accident. I didn't mean to kill anybody. Well, my little pretty, I can cause accidents too. Aren't you forgetting the ruby slippers? The slippers? Yes. They're gone. The ruby slippers. What have you done with them? Give them back to me or I'll... It's too late. There they are, and there they'll stay. Give me back my slippers. I'm the only one that knows how to use them. They're no use to you. Give them back to me. Give them back. Keep tight inside of them. Their magic must be very powerful, or she wouldn't want them so badly. You stay out of this, Glinda, or I'll fix you as well. Oh, <laughs> rubbish. You have no power here. Be gone before somebody drops the house on you too. So y- you get the main idea. (laughs) It's really very interesting to see both of these witches portrayed so clearly as being good and evil and them interacting. I mean, this the way it's blocked in this scene is literally like the good witch is standing behind Dorothy holding her close and the bad witch is standing on the other side with her broom and is like shaking her broom at her. And it's just a very clean cut way to see how they've portrayed witches like this. So I thought that was a good clip to show. Do you want to tell us about the movie? I mean, about the book? Yeah. I think the movie does justice to that dynamic, like you said. But it's interesting. So the North and the the South are the good witches. The East and the West are the bad witches. But they all have their own realm. They are controlling a society. Each of them are. So they're pretty equal in that way which is great because none of the works thus far, because of all the witch trials and the fairy tales, this is the first work that appears in popular culture again, where witches can be something other than the evil witch. So giving them power to begin with is brilliant and making it a children's literature and having them not associated with the devil and just more fantastical because Glinda looks pretty bubbly and the Wicked Witch of the West looks just like green green and weird. (laughs) None of that says anything demonic, really, at least directly with the devil, but it's theatrically very obvious who's good and who's bad. I thought that was a great way to do it. But I do want to read a quote from his his novel, which is, this is actually the the Wizard of Oz talking when he's explaining to Dorothy like how he got there and, and why he stayed. He says that one of my greatest fears was the witches, for while I had no magical powers at all, I soon found out that the witches were really able to do wonderful things. There were four of them in this country, and they ruled the people who live in the north and the south and the east and the west. Fortunately, the witches of the north and south were good, and I knew they would do me no harm. But the witches of the east and the west were terribly wicked, 
and had they not thought I was more powerful than they themselves, they would surely have destroyed me. Beautifully put. Yeah, and the seeds of respect are back. That's the big thing. You know, this male who's masquerading as the most powerful, he's actually giving credit where credit's due. Is like, this is not my realm. They're ruled by four women. Too good, too bad. But nevertheless, they're powerful women. Yeah. I, I And that really show, showcases like the witch trials again, where you have these men who are over-asserting dominance because they know that they're not as powerful. And the fact that Al Frank Baum is a man, too, is a good start. He's the one who's giving respect to it, and he's the one being published. Yeah. And I was going to say, this leads me into the historic placement of Wizard of Oz, because I think it's important. This is the beginning of the suffragettes movement, Hmm. the women's movement. And it's coming at a critical time, because even Baum married the daughter of, her name was Matilda Jocelyn Gage, a well-known suffragette at the time who also wrote about the witch trials. Nice. They were so close in their activism because he was also a feminist. And then when he, you know, fell in love with her daughter, that was really poetic, I would say. Yeah. (laughs) But they all came from the same circle, which is how do we get women in control again? And just this tiny act of children's literature was a big step in that direction because when it became popular and accepted within the school's Children could now see what it meant for a woman to be in power. Even though there was some, in the future, there's some downfalls again, where the flat evil witch comes back and stays there. There's also this green light on media that can show them powerful and good again. He basically brought back the good witch. Even though she's not the goddess, she is the good witch. The good witch. It's amazing. Um, Published in 1900. Did I say that? The publication? No, but that's... Makes sense with suffragettes movement. It really laid the foundation for the witch that we'll talk about after this, too. So what about the character scene today? Because The Wizard of Oz became such a big following, there's many versions of it, including The Wiz, the musical, Wicked, the musical. They had that movie, and they have some series now, too, which I totally forgot about. But Oz the Great and Powerful was another movie that sort of played with the origins of the Wicked Witch. The Wiz brought back the North, South, East, and West concepts, which I thought mm. was really cool. And being an all-black cast was a step in the great direction. Totally. Unfortunately, it didn't catch as massively as it should have. I think it became a cult classic specifically for the black community, mm. but it should have been more. Yeah. And I guess that's where Wicked kind of steps in. 2003, I know it's a lot further down the line because The Wiz was in the 70s. Wicked, 2003, but it makes a big bang, right? I mean, Wicked is still being, or it was on Broadway not too long ago. Yeah. And again, it's an origin story that allows us to sympathize with her, and it's much more complex, and we get more of a relationship with Glinda and the Wicked Witch. All of that is really interesting. Would you agree? That was, yeah, that was definitely the source I looked at. Not only... Gregory Maguire's book, but the musical that followed, which is different, but equally is alternative to the origins, like you just said. I did add that, like, I liked that Glinda is Galinda in this version. I mean, the the two women are basically roommates at university, and 
obviously Galinda later becomes Glinda and she's the good witch of the West, of the North and she and Alfalba, who is the wicked witch of the West, become good friends. And I like it because they're young women. They have an alternate relationship. We get to see their relationship. And I, I don't really know, I don't know if you know, if there's a deep or meaningful relationship in the book series about the witches like are they related do they have communication with each other is there anything like that in the books that you know of well obviously the good witches are sort of clumped enemies with the bad witches and it makes that obvious throughout but like the north and the south even though they don't communicate often they know what they can do and they know that they're both good and yeah i mean i think that's something i really like about this version is that we really get to see not just an origin story because an origin story sometimes means how did they end up where they end up it's more of a pre i don't know how you would call it an alternative earlier version because yeah we just really get to see them grow into characters and see how they could have been too this is so not important but i have to mention it the fan fiction for Gelfi, that's the name of the ship for them, for Alfalba and Galinda, is Gelfi. Very strong. The force is strong with those people. Tumblr, like I'm surprised that they weren't in a relationship in the actual book and or the musical because that is like the number one ship of the entire series. And it makes sense because... Women don't have a lot of representation as it is, and especially like queer women or lesbians have very, very little representation. So something like this is perfect. It's perfect. It's college. They're on opposite ends. It's like Romeo and Juliet in some ways where they're like coming from opposite places. And it just makes a lot of sense that this was adapted by the queer subculture. And we just saw it. We literally just saw it in Fantastic Beasts with Dumbledore and Grindelwald. Like that that dynamic of being best friends and then the worst enemies is so fascinating. So why not two women, especially two witches? Yeah. But it is written by a man again, and you know there's there's a lot of good things. The book is very different than the musical, but there are a lot of good things about both. Um, but you're still seeing it from a patriarchal view, and that has its drawbacks. You know, it just does, and. Again, queer representation is so, it's been coming up a lot for me because of the series Picard, which is by far the worst form of queer baiting that I've ever seen, which is too bad because I love Star Trek and I love Seven of Nine. And it's really apparent that they don't have any sort of representation on the production side. Um, Or if they do, they're not really listening to them. So it's been coming up a lot that there's like an entire subculture of people that have to create this on their own because it's not there for them. And so Gelfi, this ship, is a very popular one. <laughs> popular. That's a song that's in Wicked. I'm not going to sing it. Popular. There you go. Lar. <laughs> so I thought it was worth mentioning because it's, it's, it's nice to see female characters on screen and on stage. And it's great either way straight or lesbian or queer or whatever but there is a large subculture that focus on that relationship so somebody just needs to go there yeah. 
Wicked and Wizard of Oz are not going away. So adaptations, plenty of room there. Let's see it. Yeah. It's it's a hard sell because the one thing that men dislike the most are things where they're not in them. And lesbian representation in particular is a really hard thing to sell because men want to see men and they want to see stories about men and with men and there's just nothing there for them in their eyes I think there's obviously a lot there for them as well but they're not interested in that so it's a very underrepresented I did have one more discussion note for Glinda the Good Witch we're talking about the dynamics of Glinda and the Wicked Witch of the West. I think it's interesting that both the movie and the book do so much to have a new image of witches for the next generation. The good witch kind of looks like a fairy, right? She's pink, fluffy. Fairy godmother. It is the fairy godmother, but they're just calling her a witch. (laughs) So that's interesting. And it doesn't quite catch on for the... I guess for the Halloween concept, like if a little girl dressed like that, they would call her a fairy godmother. They wouldn't call her the good witch. Whereas the wicked witch look, the green skin, pointy hat, broom, black, all of that will outlast her. Like we see her in cartoons like that. We see her in Disney stuff like that. And so that's the lasting legacy of that look of the wicked witch. It's ironic because the woman that plays the Wicked Witch of the West in the movie was like one of the nicest people. Like she was loved on set. She was just one of the sweetest people. And I thought that really was awesome that she was the one that played the Wicked Witch of the West. I mean, yeah, she could have been anybody because the Wicked Witch is a character. She's not a character. Right. She's flat. Yeah. Right. But that makes me happy to know that. And I was just going to mention that in the book, in Baum's description, it's interesting that he represents both the older witch and the younger witch for the North and the South, mm. both good witches. But his mm. the first one that Dorothy meets is not Glinda. We don't actually know her name, I think. I don't think we ever get mm. a name. He describes her like this. The little woman's hat was white and she wore a white gown that hung in pleats from her shoulders. Over it were sparkled little stars that glistened in the sun like diamonds. The little woman was doubtless much older. Her face was covered with wrinkles. Her hair was nearly white and she walked rather stiffly. So it's it's interesting because she's both like fairy-like, but she's older. And it's okay. It was okay right. for her to be older because she looked very wise and good. Right. Glinda in the book is the witch of the South. And she is described as young. And he says she was both beautiful and young to their eyes. Her hair was rich red in color and fell in flowing ringlets over her shoulders. Her dress was pure white as well, but her eyes were blue and they looked kindly upon the little girl. So, I mean, it's interesting. It's just interesting the the difference of good witch descriptions. I, I was going to bring that up as well, that like, Glinda is depicted in the books as a younger looking woman with long, rich red hair and blue eyes and wearing a pure white dress and uh, is actually, I think there was like a quote that she's actually far older than she appears, but she has so much wisdom because she's older, but because of how good she is, she appears younger than she actually is. 
So I just thought that was interesting as well. I'm, I'm not sure what that means exactly, but <laughs> it's interesting. That's a trait that Bradley uses in the Mists of Avalon too. She says that fairies have this ability to make themselves look young because of their dominating presence. It's not even that they are young. It's that they, what power they have in them makes them young. It's, it's a great concept. And I love to see it here in Baum's work hmm. too. It's great. I like that. So, moving right along down our merry forest path, I don't know, past the cottage with the burning skeleton on a stick, <laughs> Charlotte, oh, that's Baba Yaga, by the way, why don't you introduce our next witch? Our last witch on our list is nowhere near the least of them. She's actually the best of yes. them. This is how I would describe Hermione Granger. She is arguably the best empowered, independent, and relatable witch character out of all of her predecessors. She is part of J.K. Rowling's fantasy world, if you've never heard of Harry Potter, <laughs> in which wizards and witches have always lived among non-magic people. And she's a vital ally to the protagonist the whole time. And people argue that there's no way the plot would have ended up the way it was unless Hermione was there. Yeah, it's just... She's that vital. It's amazing. I would like to add this summary of the importance of Hermione. So, quote, Her character somewhat overhauled and recalibrated what it means to be a witch in the modern era. From her unparalleled brilliance, passionate dedication, and relentless pursuit of knowledge, Hermione shows what is possible through hard work and study. Being a witch is not always a natural gift or a genetic predisposition. A witch's power is achievable through sheer willpower and conviction. Hermione illustrates these principles while unapologetically dismantling patriarchal systems latent in the world, yielding what is perhaps the best model for contemporary witches, male and female alike. There is so much in her character that continues long-standing witch tropes from her bottomless magic bag to the marginalization of her blood lineage to her familiar and her unabashed faith and belief in a magical morality. Hermione is truly a witch to be reckoned with. I just thought that was like a perfect summation of summation of, of Hermione and her importance. That's lovely. I want to add one quote and then pass it off to you to talk about the movies. And this is Hermione Granger about Hermione Granger. Actually, I'm highly logical, which allows me to look past extraneous detail and perceive clearly that which others overlook. I think that that's like a really, she's a clever witch. I mean, that's what they talk about a lot. She's the clever witch. And she's also like, a caring witch, but I, I like that her cleverness and her ability to take a bunch of information and pull out the information that they need at the moment is really exciting. And she kind of talks down to herself about herself in the movies somewhat, which is a bit disappointing. But generally speaking, in the books, I, I like that she knows what she is. And that's the relatability, isn't it? Taking aspects of the once powerful matron goddess 
who knew her craft. That's, I think this is the ideal witch that I would have created too, which is like, okay, so we're living in a logical society. So she's logical, but she also loves to read. She wants to know everything, but she's still living in a patriarchal society. So she's doubting herself just like we would, because no matter how logical and book smart we want to be, we're still women and we'll come with that baggage. It's, it's part of our conflict. That's something that we do have to overcome. And eventually, if we are confident enough, we'll just start to ignore our self-doubt because we do know what we're talking about and we change the future like Hermione did. We have importance, obviously, and we're needed for success. And I like, yeah, exactly. Like, I like that she knows that and she it's not an ego thing. She's just like, I know what I'm doing. I love it. That's a great passage. I know it's short, but it's just who she is. The scene I took was from the fact that she is considered what they call a mudblood. And it's it's a great metaphor for foreign people, for example, or the less wealthy. Whoever is mm. below status, it's a horrible place to start in life. But man, does that mean you fight ever more for it? Yeah, it does. So the fact that she's a mudblood, not pure wizard blood coming from Mughal parents, that's just another conflict for her to overcome. So I took that scene, and I'm going to share it with you right now. He called me a mudblood. He did not. What's a mudblood? It means dirty blood. Mudblood's a really foul name for someone who is muggle-born, someone with non-magic parents, someone like me. It's not a term one usually hears in civilized conversation. See, the thing is, Harry, there's some wizards, like the Malfoy family, who think they're better than everyone else because they're what people call pure blood. That's horrible. It's disgusting. And it's Codswell up to birds. Dirty blood. Why, there isn't a wizard alive today that's not half blood or less. More to the point, they've yet to think of a spell that our Hermione can't do. Come here. Don't you think on it, Hermione. Don't you think on it for one minute. Me. So before we move on to more of a discussion, maybe I should also, because we've been doing it for every of these characters, to have a placement in history. Why we got her when we did. Yes. I mean, I think it's perfect timing, but let's see. Let's see what we, we all think here. Rowling actually started writing the books in 1990. So we're in the 90s. And the movies themselves are actually, no, the first book was published in 1997, and then the movie started in the 2000s. So I would call this the girl power movement. In TV and movies, we were getting the trope of the witch used as, as somewhat relatable, I think, because things like Sabrina the Teenage Witch, we had Halloween Town, they were accessible and we sympathized with them and they were more normal. But at some point, the whole badass girl somehow took over that. And it's not like that wasn't interesting. It was interesting. But this this person I was reading about put it in such a way that said it was less relatable. We couldn't fight that way. And once you take away that relatability, it's hard for us to see ourselves in them. So when Hermione came along and being a witch and a wizard was just completely normalized to begin with in this world all of that relatability came back. Like we didn't have to be special born. We didn't have to 
know how to fight to do all these things because she was studying and we were studying and we were estranged and she was estranged. It really fit well within the girl power movement. So I think Rowley, I, I don't know if Rowling connected to that zeitgeist or anything, but man, did she create that character at the right time is what I would say about it. What do you think? Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's what I have to say about it is, yeah. We've talked about this before in the past. Our issue with Harry at times is that he's under that chosen one title. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't give you that sense of anybody could be this hero. No, it has to be this person, not you, them. And like you just said, Hermione is a great example of you can be this girl. You are this girl. You study and you work hard and you you get a skill and everything else is kind of given to others, but she she learns it completely and she really fights for a place at the table. She shouldn't have to earn equality, but she she does and she does it in her own way, which I also think is a relatable thing. Like she's she's not above making mistakes, but everything is a a learning process for it and she grows i think even the statement that you read mentions this which is people especially boys would call her bossy when we first begin in sorcerer's stone and then by the time where i mean even the play that's written as a post idea right where they're grown she's the president of the ministry of magic like she's worked her way to a place of authority and the fact that she saved the chosen one is just sprinkled on there. Like, yeah, she saved him and the world wouldn't be the same without her. But let's put that aside and let's just look at her as a person. And she's grown even in that way too. And much, much like the other ones that we've talked about, I mean, Harry Potter in particular has like millions of fan fiction stories. Everybody writes Harry Potter fan fiction because the world is so rich. We're not talking about Rowling right now, just the books. (laughs) And Hermione is one of those characters that really can and has represented the unrepresented in media. And I don't think there's another character that is shipped with so many other characters than Hermione because she really can, she's a strong, clever witch you can ship that with anybody because she's a strong, clever witch. I mean, almost everybody. So I really like that she's also a character that people use who are underrepresented and who have who are in a subculture that is not represented typically. I mean, there was all that talk about Hermione possibly being black. And for those people, that was a form of representation that they don't get. And Tumblr, for instance, has many depictions of Hermione as being a, a black woman. For queer women, obviously, we want her to be queer. But because she's such a dynamic character, we really can use her in in all these different ways. And I think that's really amazing to have a character that's so dynamic that they can be anything. It kind of goes back to Hecate, you know, where she can kind of be everything, but it doesn't feel cheap. It feels like, wow, that's an amazing character. It's a full circle. You're right. All of those attributes that we attribute to Hecate is back here in Hermione, but in a relatable way. No longer the goddess, but among us. And we can be that now. Among us. I love it. 
I mean, I think we hit it over the head. I was just going to say as a, as a sidebar that there are other, obviously, have been more recent witch characters, mainly on TV, that give us the same sort of relatable witch archetype feeling. I don't know what to call that. Um, the new version of the, uh, the what is it? The Something Adventures of Sabrina. Um, it's like a dark take on the Sabrina character. But again, it has a lot of a big queer following because you have all these female characters and we're underrepresented. Um, so it's another version of that. But obviously Hermione is the big one because it's so, she's a character so well known. Even people who have not seen Harry Potter know either of Hermione, know her by name or would recognize that she's, oh yeah, she's that one with the other two. It's like, uh, uh, it's amazing to have a young female character be so uh, universally recognized on, on such a high level, not obviously everywhere, but, um, totally amazing and great. And I, I can't wait to see the next one that comes up, um, that takes over in terms of popularity on a wide scale. So, like, as you just said, we've gone over the five staples or phases, and I, for one, am very excited to hear about the witch slash healer that you chose. Do you want to tell us about it? Yes, yes. So after we talked about the five, we decided, yeah, to pick our own character that we like the most uh, that goes under the witch slash healer archetype. And I knew mine from the very beginning. Actually, this is the reason why I picked or I suggested this one. Because in school, in, especially in New Mexico, I'm not sure about everywhere else. Mm -hmm. In Santa Fe, New Mexico, one of the big books on the list here is Bless Me Ultima by Rudolfo Anaya. He wrote it in 1973-72. And out of all of the books that we read, and it makes sense because it takes place in New Mexico and it's by a New Mexican or sure. a Hispanic. I'm actually not sure if he's New Mexican, to tell you the truth. Sure. So it was very relatable. But not only that, it talked about witches. One of the main characters is considered a curandera, a healer, but many would call her a witch. So I'm like, yeah, this we have to talk about this. And what's happening even in all parts of the world where everybody has a healer archetype who's now condoned for what they do, because usually because it butts heads with the religion, the modern religion. It's a spooky thing when old ways come up traditional ways yeah that you can't explain sometimes hmm. and it's it's mostly a f female thing right i mean do we see many accounts of men being accused of being witches or warlocks or whatever <laughs> there was some and you know in my research they do mention it but hmm. typically it was the female of the household who knew how to do herbs and mm. take care of bodies and health because they were the ones at home. I see. It, it, you know, there could be parts of the world where it was male dominant, 
from the beginning. Hmm. But usually the male thing comes when doctors become a thing, when it's like a licensed practitioner. Hmm. You have to get licensed. Of course. <laughs> and those who get taught for that are males. So that female healer sort of gets pushed aside. They still know things and they'll still do things, especially in smaller rural areas, because you can't afford doctors. Even when this book takes place, there's one doctor, I think, in Las Vegas, New Mexico that they mention. But other than that, you got to know how to heal. Yeah. And it's typically the wise woman of the household who remembers how to do things without that doctor around. So, of course, you're going to use her. I mean, it's so silly. And then they don't like acknowledge it. Anyway, yeah. We can go on a tangent about that too, but. <laughs> well, I was just going to say it makes sense. I mean, in terms of also the Mists of Avalon, like you have this pagan lifestyle. And also I think women tend to have roles in the community uh, more than sometimes men do in these older times, older times. So it makes sense that like the wise people of the village are the women and because of that, they also harness medicine. So it's kind of like by default, by default, by default, which I think is interesting because it's not actually necessarily based in gender. It totally is, but it's also like not. And rightly so. If you listen to part one, we talked about in the mythos and myth, it's woman who is in charge of life in every stage, right? Birth, life, death. And that is an extreme, beautiful power that was taken so early on that the, the female psyche is just now, it, it's so confused and underground that we're fighting mm. just to keep our knowledge of basic healing. And I mean basic, like mm. the physical health. Mm. And, you know, I think curanderas, even in New Mexico, were respected just a little bit more, even when Christianity mm. became a big thing. The psychology of the indigenous was kind of in the blood already as well. So we respected native practices. Mm. Then we respected like, oh, maybe God is also in those practices because obviously we still need the curandera. They called midwives perteras mm. and they were huge too. Mm. So there was like a big respect. No matter where that power was coming from, it was needed. So you got over the fact that people called them witches and you brought them to the household when somebody was having a baby done so a real quick summary because i don't i didn't actually describe this book but uh, it's set in a small town in new mexico i think it's a fictional place because i've never heard of it mm. and it's at the it the time is at the end of world war ii and it's this young kid named tony mares y luna his mother is a luna his mm. father was a mares his mother comes from a farming and ranching background and his father is like a the equivalent of a seafarer they used to travel on the sea but when they got on land they became horse riders it's basically like the wild man archetype is what his father's family comes from yeah it's it's great ride a boat to ride a horse isn't that interesting but tony's getting pulled this whole time between his mom wanting him to be a priest with the church mm. and then his father wanting him to be wild and free and do whatever he wants and he himself is attracted to education again another reason why i'm like <laughs> I totally relate to this book because he wants to learn like he wants to be an educated man the whole time. That's what he says. Like he tries to be a priest. He tries to be what his father wants him to be. But the whole time he just wants to learn. I'm like, yeah, man, hmm. you keep doing that, little boy. That's great. <laughs> but anyway, the basis of the story is that Ultima is like one of the last practicing curanderas in the area. 
and she's brought to their household to live. I don't think she's related to them, but again, she's like the only midwife around and she's getting old, so they want to take care of her. I see. Since Anaya is more of a magical realist author, there's some indications that there's like a connection between Ultima and Tony that Ultima sees that he wants to be an educated person. And she Hmm. slowly begins to train him not only in in medicine, but in supernatural arts. Because what she does is like exorcisms, not just healing of the body, but she does like real exorcisms. Wow. Because she does like these two grand acts that are extremely magical. There's like no other way to put it. It's magic. And Hmm. he knows that. And he sees it. Hmm. He's kind of like the only one who's able to see it because she shows him certain things and tells him Hmm. certain things. The whole time... He's really grappling with the belief of the Catholic Church because he's in these Catholic classes already. And then what's happening with his ancestral pagan ways, which is Ultima's way. <laughs> and it's it's just yeah. great. It's like all the dualities of my childhood are in this book. And I'm like, yes! <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of stuff there. Wow. But real quick, can I read two quotes from the book? Yeah. So the premise is that there's these three sisters and they're they're pretty like evil people to begin with, but they're they're sort of already known as witches in this town. But they curse one of Tony's uncles and he mm. gets sick. So Ultima has to heal him. But then when she successfully heals him, they accuse Ultima of being a witch. While these three women are doing like the evil things. It's like, well, what do you want? Oh my God. Yeah, it's just like so confusing. But this is kind of, this is a passage that describes those the evil witches versus Ultima. And this is Tony speaking. I had heard many stories of people who had seen the bright balls of fire. These fireballs were brujas on their way to their meeting places. There it was said they conducted the black mass in honor of the devil. And the devil appeared and danced with them. So that's the town's psychology behind the witch. Sounds fun. A little dance. Yeah. It's a very witch trial-y standard witch. Worshipping the devil, dancing in the woods, which is, by the way, mostly fictional from that era. Yeah. But it caught on, and that's what everybody kind of believes. And then this other passage, this is where, I mean, I'll just read it. This is also Tony talking. It says, the priest at El Puerto, which is where they lived, did not want the people to place much faith in the powers of the curandera. He wanted the mercy and the faith of the church to be the villagers' only guiding light. Would the magic of Ultima be stronger than all the powers of the saints and the Holy Mother Church? I wondered. Hmm. So that's more of Tony's like, I'm I'm being taught one thing, yet Ultima is very much doing all of these things successfully. So, and he's after the truth. So obviously he's super confused by all of this. Mm -hmm, As one would be. Anaya does all the typical witch stuff. He talks about, you know, those balls of fire being the witches. They talk about like voodoo, using the dolls and chanting medicines, herbs. It's all used. They even do the test of the cross that a, a witch can't cross a threshold where a cross is being hung or over any sort of Christian cross. Interesting. And we're not actually sure if Ultima passes the test. It's an interesting part in the book where hmm. she... She kind of distracts the villagers before she goes through the threshold because Tony later finds the cross on the floor and he was like, was this on the threshold when she passed? (laughs) Hmm. But the point is, the whole time Ultima is talking about being a good person and that's Hmm. what she's teaching Tony the whole time, what it Hmm. means to be good. 
I like that it's a little bit open to interpretation. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's no right or wrong or truth that Anaya like flatly says other than that good should always win. Mm. Yeah, and I like that that message is clear in that example because it sounds like she's doing something wrong by like lying, but she's doing it in a way that is protecting her. I don't know. I I it there's there's interesting stuff there. And I like the fact that he puts it in a magical realist universe. I've probably told the listeners here many times, which is I like writing in magical realism because you don't you don't want to tell exact truths. You want to tell it as a metaphor and, and mm. not quite clear. And and that that genre lets you play with it, I think. You know, same thing with fantasy, but magical realism especially. It's like it could be magic or it could be that it's a perspective from a kid. That's about it. Any other curiosities? I I'd really like to check it out at some point. I'm sure the audiobook is on Audible or something or YouTube or something. I think it would be a very good book to listen to. And I would say if anybody listens to it to tell us what you think. I do have a kind of a exit quote from that book that I think sums up a good theme and thesis. Yeah. He ends with this. And that is what Ultima tried to teach me, that the tragic consequences of life can be overcome by the magical strength that resides in the human heart. Very nice. It's beautiful. <laughs> it doesn't even like, matter if it's real magic. I think that's a big theme in this archetype as well, is that there's a tremendous magic that's lost hmm. with this evolution of healer to witch. That's all I would say hmm. about that. Let's talk about Willow. Yeah, so um, I, yes. So I went with the first witch character that I really became aware of and the one who over the course of seven seasons realizes her sexuality and comes out as a lesbian and there's a lot of good stuff there and it's all very relevant to me. So I was like, yes, I'm going to go with Willow. So Willow Rosenberg is a character from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which premiered its TV show, which premiered in 1997 and went for seven years. And it was an American TV supernatural drama. And it was based on a movie of the same title, which was also created by Joss Whedon. So the series begins as Buffy, Willow, and their friend Xander are in 10th grade, and Willow is a shy, nerdy girl with very little confidence. She has an inherent magical ability and begins to, to study witchcraft as the series progresses. Um, she becomes more sure of herself, and her magical powers become more significant. And her dependence on magic becomes so consuming later on uh, that it actually develops into a dark force that takes her on this journey where she basically tries to redeem herself and it becomes part of the season six she becomes season six's main villain which i think is really fun because you don't get to see that a whole lot right and she threatens to destroy the world in a fit of grief and rage which is sort of your typical what i think people think of witches is being these hateful 
creatures who just want to see the world burn. That's a Batman quote, but you know what I mean. We are not known for Batman quotes. <laughs> we are not. Absolutely not. So, okay, what I think is interesting about Willow is that we get to see her arc from witch to not from non-witch or like what I would say, I'm going to say non-witch as in she's not a threat to patriarchal society. She's like this sweet, nerdy girl and she's not a problem in that frame. Um, so despite the show's usage of this negative stereotype of quote bury our gaze which is a very popular thing which i think we've talked about before but in very simple terms means that they always kill off gay characters in tv shows especially um they do do this in that show um and willow ends up becoming this dark witch because her partner is killed and they have this depiction of magic that I think is really interesting because she's like a drug addict, like she's feeding kind of vampiric too, but it's more like a drug addiction. Like she goes to see this guy who like has all this magic and he is very much like a cult leader drug guy, a cult leader drug guy. That's what I'm going with. <laughs> and, <laughs> and through this process of like becoming more powerful she ends up killing somebody which is not an easy thing to come back from and she does not kill him in a just like oh i'm gonna stab you that's bad too but she kills him in a very horrifying way and despite all of that we do eventually get to kind of see her come back to herself and that isn't the end of her arc which is what I find super interesting. I mean, this takes place over seven seasons, so I'm very much skipping a lot. But after this dark point, um, she's brought back to herself and she ends up becoming afraid of her own magic and her own power, which I think is very much relevant to this idea of the patriarchy in relation to her arc and her as a character slash person. Um, where she's gone from what's acceptable to all the way over to enemy because we have to demonize her. She is doing bad stuff. It's not like she doesn't deserve it. But And then it doesn't end there. I think people expect it to end there. Like the Wicked Witch is melted with water and that's it. It's done. Um, but she is not in that realm. And we get to see her try to come back from these terrible things that have happened and that she's done and work her way back into being a good witch. So she's not a pure Glinda witch in the end, but she's not evil by any means. So we see her kind of fall into what I would call a human. <laughs> she's she's like in a human section. I don't, I don't, she becomes human. She's not this creature to be used before she comes into her magic and she's not something to be destroyed and she's not all good and powerful and she's not all bad and powerful she's herself and powerful otherwise known as empowered maybe i do have a little clip after warren shot you you know all about that what happened it was horrible i was horrible i i lost myself the regular me you were grieving. 
A lot of people grieve. They don't make with the flaying. I hurt so many people. It was the power. I am the power. It's in me. Did I mention the random destruction of property? The magic box is not so much a box The power now. is bigger than you are. I know, but... Things are more clear where Terra is, where we are. We can see your path, and you have to stop. You can't use magic again, not ever. Black magic, of course. But Giles says it isn't as simple as, as quitting it all cold turkey. It's too dangerous. You can't take the chance that you'll lose control. I, I don't want to. I, I can't. I never want to cause that kind of pain. Of course you don't. So I won't. I'm going to be okay. I think that's the most, the main part of it that I wanted to play. We get to kind of see, like, in this case, the other person she's talking with is kind of a representation of, could be a representation of a lot of things, including self-doubt or her having this argument with herself, which I think is really interesting, especially since these are two, like, female characters having a discussion about something like her coming into her own power and then being afraid of it. Like, it's just very relevant to, I think, it's more relevant to women and to girls who watch the show. And it's nice to see that because that's not something we get to see very much. I don't know that I gave it really the justice it deserves, but if you're interested in that sort of thing, I Willow is definitely a good character to check out, despite some of the problems with the show, just in terms of timetable like now obviously we would see these things a lot differently she is really a dynamic and interesting character who we follow through this like really powerful and interesting arc of like not it's like parallel to it's sort of like she comes into her magic and then she's also coming into her own sexuality and then she's like dealing with loss and both of those things merging it's it's got a lot of stuff going on in it and that's why i think a lot of people like buffy there's a lot of really deep things happening in a very campy style and in, in the timeline it doesn't that's like i would call that the the 90s girl power movement that i think i mentioned in part one which is that the archetype is becoming less of an archetype and more of a character like, I would call Ultima an archetype in this book mm. because she's being shown through the perspective of a little boy who's talking mm. about his own life. Mm. It's very much she is fitting a role. You can kind of fill in her complexity, but mm. he won't do it for you. Mm. Whereas in Buffy, you get a whole TV series of growth for a character that you didn't suspect would be a witch because she starts off really innocent, like you said, but then she goes to the extreme. And then by the end, she's trying to find a middle ground where she comes to herself. That is very much a character and a deep character. True. So I would say the 90s is like, yeah, they're at least getting there and they're they're fixing what we think of as witch. Hmm. I like it. Yeah. I, yeah. It's coming. It was coming back to me as I was trying to remember all of Buffy yeah. <laughs> yeah, and she does that and she does that but she still believes in love mm -hmm. and yeah it's great yeah it's awesome she is a, a very interesting character yeah definitely I, I definitely want everybody to go watch Buffy now go on get out of here just kidding so what my question to you is like what do you think about this arc this whole journey from Hecate Hecate 
to Buffy, to Hermione. As an archetype, and I think this is why our thesis was stated the way it was, which is it begins as this universal goddess in charge of life to a shadow of a patriarch that doesn't know what to do with women power anymore. And I, I think we've seen, at least in media and literature and in modern religion, I would say neo-pagans practice this, which is that there's a coming back to whatever power we remember in simple terms, because we don't remember it all. And unfortunately, I don't think we'll ever get all of the knowledge back, especially if we are still living in what we would consider patriarchy, right? Because we're not following, fam- we're still not following families by the mother, But what was my point about that? That we're still missing a big chunk of that. And looking at these characters maybe indicates that the typical woman that we feel of as witch, the isolated, the different woman, is more complex than we ever thought. Hermione, Willow, they have to go through these extremes and be real people. What does that mean to be a real person with power? Hmm. What do you think? I think that it's unfortunate that... Some things continue to be true throughout a lot of these stories. I mean, even with Hermione, you still have these other groups of people who are trying to persecute these women, especially. And I think that's an unfortunate truth. That's part of the archetype, obviously. It's still just so very true, at least in the U.S. It's it's part of our society to live in a patriarchy, like you said, and to interpret it more in societal terms i it just even the things going on right now with reproductive rights i mean it's obvious that our men in power still fear letting women have the power that they have they would rather continue to have control assert control over our bodies over education over medical over everything because there is a lot of power there and if that power is not realized then it's better for them and i like that about these witches and these witch stories is that there's always at least there's typically maybe not with the early ones but there's typically a a phase where they come into their power and it becomes like a even when they're persecuted they are this person now you can't take that away from them. There's still that. And in a lot of them, you see perseverance, which I think is really cool. In general, you're, uh, I mean, you're correct. Men, and uh, with, I would specifically say with the influence of the church, is still in control of all of those original three phases that the goddess was empowered with. Birth, life, death. Birth, conception, all of that. Like, oh, no, we tell you that you keep the baby no matter what. Oh, we tell you how you take care of yourself medically because our doctors are typically male and we want your money. Oh, we tell you how to be buried when you're dead because if you're Christianed, you cannot go on a barge and have a flame thrown at you like the Vikings or you can't you can't become a tree. You can't be encased in a necklace like all these things is like, no, you have to be buried in the ground, have a service. You know, there's there's exactly a guideline on how you die. It is all three phases that they're still in control of. Wow. I, I, that's, you know, (laughs) that's what I have to say about that. (laughs) My words. I, it's just, it's mind boggling to me that we still, 
struggle to assert even the tiniest bit of power in a society that makes us powerless and that that is still so feared uh, and so it brings so much anxiety to men. I'm just like, you're so fragile. <laughs> Why are you so fragile? <laughs> and it's like, they think that, you know, they have to, it's just so much rhetoric. And even you thinking logically, quote unquote, logically, that makes you a witch because you're not listening to what you should be doing. And it's just, it's it's crazy. I mean, I think that that's generally... I mean, you're not going to see religious people necessarily call scientists witches <laughs> or like maybe demons, but that's basically what the implication is. Like if you're not doing it this way and you want to have some form of power, you're being a witch. See, those extremes are back. That's that's what they do. The reactions are always in the extreme. If you're not conforming, then you're the demon. You're associated with the devil. It's so easy to say those things. And people, because, you know, politically, we're, we're torn onto these extremes. I guess it's easier on a grander population and on our brains to say, like, oh, you fit in that category. Therefore, I will not vote for you. Obviously, that's how. That's how the politicians do it. But let's say in general, as a society, I feel like we do think in complex ways. And I would say there's a greater percentage of people who are worried about things like sustainability and population control and what we do with the decaying bodies. You know, I don't know. It, I feel like there's more of us who think logically than we like to believe because we can't obviously say it out loud or else we get put into those two categories. Right. And it's like, why Why can't we have both? Why can't we be a good, what we th believe is a good Christian and also have autonomy? That doesn't seem like those two things should be mutually uh, exclusive. <laughs> so basic. That seems so, so basic, basic when you say it like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess what we're saying is there's obviously a lot tied in here to this idea, this category, this archetype of the witch and the healer. And both have, they're both are the one and the same, but they both have these wildly different connotations. And it really kind of seems like it depends on the, you know, which direction the wind is blowing to decide whether somebody who is a strong person who knows how to do stuff is a witch or a healer. And it's completely based on what the outside thinks. And I think that's why a lot of people have like taken the word back. You know, they're like we've talked about, there's pagans now and other witch related religions, I guess that's what you can call them. And they're very diversified and they've taken back those titles and taken it into something that they believe is empowering. And it is empowering, I'm sure. But it's only because <laughs> it's only empowering because of all this bullshit that's connected to this archetype, which is just crazy. We both obviously find this to be a very interesting topic, and I am really glad that we got to do this after our hiatus. And we 
thank everybody who voted in the poll. And of course, if you guys like that, we can do it again. Just let us know if you want to do, uh, if you want to have a say in one of the things that we do a topic on. Maybe we won't take so long this time. Sorry about that. But we still did it. So there. And thank you, of course, for hanging out and waiting for us during our hiatus. I think we're finally, I'm finally settled where I'm at and we are good to go to keep producing stuff. So please let us know what you think and we obviously appreciate your support. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and our website, bitethepen.com. And of course, we have to thank our patron pen biters, uh, Patreon pen biters. So that's Jesse M., Thunderfly and Jeanette M. Thank you guys so much for your support and thank you for our listeners for hanging out with us and we hope that you enjoyed the program today. I don't ever say that. I don't know why I'm saying that. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you for tuning into our program. Today. Yes. <laughs> this has been NPR. Uh, no, we're not NPR. <laughs> Don't forget, Charlotte is going to give us a quote at the end of the episode. But until our next time, thank you always for listening and caps off. We must send you off with some wise words on our topic for today. And it comes from a online magazine. Since we're talking about empowerment, I thought this was really cute and it popped up during my research. I'm like, you know what? This just feels encouraging and it might be the perfect quote. I think the blog is called Rebel Society. It's celebrating the art of being alive. And this woman titled it Unmasking the Witch, the Power of Archetype Work for Women. Witch, as a symbol, is a woman or man who is not only connected to power, but also to their body, nature, and the cycles of the world. She is aware of both her power to destroy and to create and understands how to wield this power in herself and her world. When we begin to embody this archetype, we can create lives that are not consuming us with output, but rather feeding us. The result is we have more to give to others. Must be.